This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonstaby. Welcome. Good day to you, gentle listener. I'm looking forward to this episode. I started this podcast right during the opening days of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, right in those first experiences of isolation. Nothing special about that. It's very common for middle-aged men to do podcasts, and the pandemic saw, I'm sure, a huge increase in amateur podcasters, YouTubers, and so on. I'm sure some great novels were written in the pandemic, some crappy ones too, and far more were abandoned, and maybe deservedly so. But when I began this podcast, of which this will be the 76th episode, I had a handful of topics I wanted to discuss, and all of these have been discussed at some point in some way, shape, or form. Those initial maybe 10 ideas All of them have been handled in the past two and a half years, except this one. And I get asked often about when I'm going to do an episode on Quentin Tarantino or a particular Quentin Tarantino film, and I just haven't been sure how to approach it until now. I am a man in my 40s. Essentially, there's no bigger cliche Tarantino fan. Pulp Fiction came out when I was in grade 12. It and Reservoir Dogs, which was made first, but like most people, I saw it second, became two generational favorite films, playing in the background of dorm rooms all through my time in university. We would watch Natural Born Killers, True Romance, and From Dusk Till Dawn just to get a bit more of his writing, even if he wasn't directing them proper. His writing is incredible, his cinematography is without peer, and his ability to take genres and reinvent them is, it's just stunning. He's also a rip-off artist. Very little of what he does is original, and yet, typically, he does it better than most of which he's stolen it, most of those creators he's stolen it from, or what he's paying homage to. And you know who else did that? William Shakespeare. So, he's in good company. His films are violent, gory, comical, full of white men using the N-word, and all of these factors can set me off personally at times. They are also, every one of them, crafted. And he consistently brings out unbelievable performances from actors. Samuel Jackson and Uma Thurman basically owe him their careers. Tarantino is an adjective. He's his own genre. He's an homage artist. He's a super fan of film. No director since Alfred Hitchcock is so impossible to forget while watching his work. His presence is louder on screen than any actor in the film, including his own frequent minor appearances. So I'm not going to analyze his films as I normally would or one of them, or a couple of them. Instead, I'm going to try something different here. I'm going to take the nine films he has produced in his 30-year career 
and rate them. Mention their failings and their virtues as I see them. Feel most free to disagree with me. Uh, I'm going to say things that are controversial. And we're going to go from worst to best. So number nine is Jackie Brown, 1997. It's obvious that this is my least favorite Tarantino film because I've watched it three times. I saw it in the theater when it came out sometime again in the past 25 years and once preparing for this episode. Three times sounds like a lot, but not with a Quentin Tarantino movie. When he's good, he's so good. The top three films at the top of this list, I can watch and rewatch a dozen times. And then some of my favorite scenes, like the opening of Inglorious Bastards or the apartment scene in Pulp Fiction, I can watch a thousand times on top of those multiple watches. Jackie Brown just ain't there for me. I don't know what it is. Most of the pieces are there. There are fine performances. It's a pretty good script. Great dialogue as usual. Um, there's the usual fun soundtrack. There's a few obligatory shots of women's feet. Uh, Bridget Fonda uh, has her feet uh, on display for most of the movie. I don't know if she like, ever wears shoes. But it's never been a remarkable film to me. Maybe because it's, uh, it's an adaptation of a novel. Well, sort of. Most of Tarantino's films are equal part homage and ripoff. But he's created them from his own mind. Well, this one is loosely based on Elmore Leonard's uh, Rum Punch novel. But maybe it's because it's the last of his first three movies, which are all set in L.A., revolving around gangsters in what was modern times when the films were made. It feels like he's a little tired, or the genre's a little tired, by the time you get to Jackie Brown after Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. It's a simple caper flick, rather than a complex one like those other two movies. It mostly doesn't play with time like those other two movies. It doesn't jump around. There are moments. There's the whole uh, change room scene gets replayed from two different versions. Um, but other than that, it's it kind of sticks to a linear storytell. And I know it's intentional, but it feels like a black exploitation film, which is why Pam Greer is the star. Tarantino flirts with a culture that isn't his all the time, comfortably using the N-word and doing a lot of what we'd later call cultural appropriation. He gets away with it somewhat because of the endorsement of black actors, especially Samuel L. Jackson, but it, it makes me uncomfortable at times, and it really does in Jackie Brown. But the thing is, Jackie Brown mostly feels like it was made as a vehicle for the newly minted superstar Jackson who after Pulp Fiction, like I said, owed Tarantino his career. It's like you're watching a movie about Samuel L. Jackson acting. His performance as the villainous Ordell Robbie is spot on, even if that stupid chin braid gets really annoying. Um, the rest of the performances are fairly dull, especially stars Pam Greer and Robert Foster, despite the fact that, Fo uh, sorry, Forrester, despite the fact that he was nominated for an Oscar for this thing. Um, but the two of them have about as much charisma and chemistry as a room temperature glass of milk for me. Even heavyweights like Robert De Niro and Michael Keaton turn in pretty meh performances. It does have a killer soundtrack. It's got some good 
uh, cinematography. Um, it's got all of uh, Bridget Fonda's foot shots. It's got crisply written dialogue. Um, Chris Tucker has a great back and forth with Samuel L. Jackson that I did enjoy rewatching, but it doesn't play with time or narrative. And there are no real huge surprises. It feels like Tarantino was trying to combine black exploitation and his own earlier caper style, and it's just never rung true or interesting to me. It is my least favorite of his films, and actually the only one of them that I don't really like. Uh, all of the rest of them I like more than I dislike. I'm rating the rest of them on this list with a particular order, but you need to understand that I actually like every single one of the rest of them, but not Jackie Brown. I'm sorry. Number eight is Death Proof, which, uh, you know what? I, I know for a fact Tarantino himself would put this lower than Jackie Brown, but I, I like it more, well, more than Jackie Brown. But anyways, it's number eight because it is Tarantino's least remarkable film. It was delivered as part of the Grindhouse double feature along with Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror. Now, I didn't bother seeing these um, together in the theater as I'm not really that big of a Rodriguez fan. And I wasn't alone. The two-movie approach, glomming these two things together, didn't appeal to many folks. It didn't do as well at the box office. Um, and it would be quite some time until I actually saw it. Uh, and with Reservoir Dogs, this stands as the only Tarantino film I never saw in the theater. I didn't see Hateful Eight right away, but I did go back after I'd seen it once and seen it in the theater. Um, although, if his 10th movie is truly his final one, like he's bizarrely suggesting, I won't see it in the theater if I can help it. As I said in an episode a couple episodes ago on the death of cinema, I don't need to sit in a movie theater ever again. I'm not going to hard and fast that, but I don't like going to theaters anymore. Anyways, despite the fact that Grindhouse failed, Death Proof feels like it's missing something even on its own, right? If you if you watch it in isolation, it's a good flick, it's intense, but it is a relatively simple movie for a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, it's divided in half, with each half having its own set of characters, save for uh, Kurt Russell, um, who's Mike, stuntman Mike, uh, is the only person who's in both parts. Um, he's a former stuntman who drives a death-proof car and uses it to get his thrills and kill people, mostly young women. It is one of the loudest Hollywood worship films he's made and the most blatant he would make until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. First off, there's the casting, which is phenomenal. I've never been uh, a Kurt Russell fan, but I like how Tarantino directs him. Uh, Tarantino has turned me into a Kurt Russell in his later years fan, if you like. In this role, he starts off as the folksy old stuntman, um, a little too old for where he is right now in a bar full of young women, bartended by Tarantino himself. Uh, he seems creepy, but you want to trust him. I mean, he's Kurt Russell. He's always the good guy. So when he turns out to be truly truly twisted and awful. It sure surprised me the first time I saw it. I didn't know much about this movie uh, going in and and I was I was shocked and when stuntman Mike kills five women 
at the end of the first act, it's really horrible. I mean, even for Tarantino, it's horrible. It is graphic. It is disturbing. It is surprisingly bloody horrible. Uh, in tip- typical Tarantino fashion, he's built some deep and believable characters only to shock you by killing them off abruptly. But it was so graphic, so horrible, that it bothered me enough that the first time I watched it, I shut it off uh, right after that first car crash scene, went for a walk, and I didn't come back to it for a day or two. I actually thought I wasn't going to finish it. I'm glad I did, but uh, I was bothered, and I, I, I've heard I'm not alone. I found it disturbing first because even to me, it was intensely grotesque, really, really graphic, but that's the grindhouse element. But secondly, because as with so many character deaths in his movies, like I said, he spent this time building these characters, fleshing them out, creating empathy in the viewer, um, that it's, it's just doubly shocking when they, when they are killed. And the story transitions then with this kind of liminal in between the two stories hospital scene involving Sheriff Earl McGraw and his son Edgar, who the sheriff keeps referring to in multiple movies as number one son. Multiple movies. I guess it's two. This and one of the Kill Bills. Um, McGraw was introduced and killed at the beginning of From From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, which was uh, a Rodriguez film, but with the help and supporting acting of Tarantino in it. Um, Anyways, McGraw and Edgar investigate the church massacre in Kill Bill, um, and then they're touched upon here. Here they completely solve Stuntman Mike's motivations, but they have no proof. Uh, Earl also... Um, speaks with uh, with a doctor. He kind of bickers with her. It turns out to be his daughter. Obviously, there's a dynamic that Tarantino was never able to take far where uh, the daughter, who's a doctor, is, you know, looked down upon by her sheriff father. It was probably going to be a running thing, but he kind of abandoned the McGraw family. Anyways, this is a neat little cross-film consistency from a director whose whole canon is in one created universe. Um, Tarantino's career comes in three movements as far as I see it, and the middle movement is only death-proof in the Kill Bill movies. So this internal consistency is cool, right? So he's got the Caper movies, um, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. Then he's got these overly... Uh, exploitive, homage violent films, genre films, I guess, in uh, in Death Proof and Kill Bill. And then his third movement are his, I, I put them in quotation mark, great films. They're all historical. Um, their scope is grander. Anyways, um, the consistency between Death Proof and Kill Bill, it's neat. With 2009's, just let me go back for a second, Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino became a darling of Hollywood again, and each subsequent film, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, have universally, universally been seen as triumphs. Although there's a carryover between all of his films, each movement is very self-referential. But, back to Death Proof. After spending nearly half his runtime. um enduring us to these four young women who he kills off brutally. Um, After endearing us to stuntman Mike, his nachos and his alcohol-free drinks only reveal the man as a sociopath. After the McGraw family dispute, Tarantino shifts gears again, and we are given four new women to worry about. 
We have Rosario Dawson as Abby. We have uh, Mary Winstead as Lee. We have Tracy Thomas as Kim. And we have Zoe Bell as herself. Uh, I've also heard it said Zoe Bell. I don't know. Um, I pronounced Zoe, especially with it's got the two dots over the E as Zoe. So I'm going to say that if I'm saying this young Kiwi stunt woman come actress's name incorrectly, I hope you uh, and she don't fault me for that. All four of these women work in the film industry, these characters. Lee is an actress and is only in the movie briefly, being left as collateral when the other three test drive a muscle car. Um, Kim is a stunt driver. Abby works in makeup. Zoe is most significant because she's an actual stunt woman. Uh, She doubled for Uma Thurman in Kill Bill. They are set up as victims. Again, you just see that this is going somewhere bad. But they are slightly older, slightly edgier, and they work in the Church of Tarantino, the film industry. So, of course, they're going to come out okay in the end. What's really cool is their first scene is a roundtable conversation with that prowling camera that immediately calls to mind the opening of Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino is not too proud to pat himself on the back. And he's also not too shy to create strong female characters just so long as he can still fetishize their feet. But rewatch that first scene where they're eating breakfast just after they picked up Zoe at the airport. The thing that you realize about what this guy can do to and with actors is like they've got to be as good as an actor on stage to pull off some of these scenes. That is a long extended shot where they have to know to say their lines at just the right time when the camera's looking at them. I don't know how much time he gives them to rehearse this, but it's got to be tricky to pull off. I have a theory I'll say later on is this might be one of the reasons why we only see some actors in his movies once is his style must be hard to work with. Anyways, um, it's, it's a funny reveal of these women because in the first act we want to trust stuntman Mike and the girls are younger and we're very interested in them. They look like they're all going places and there's their implied relationships and da 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 da. With this for we assume more horror is coming and when Mike shows up we're tense right off the bat. Zoe performs on the stunt of the hood of a car as Kim drives and then Mike attacks them and there's a lot of screaming. But... Once they stop and collect themselves, it's a whole different movie. Um, They wing Mike with a bullet and he turns into a complete, why me, little baby. He's now on the run from them and they get their retribution. It's a twist, happy ending with some, as the kids say, girl bosses. Mike gets justice. It's a good movie, but it's just, it's pretty simple. But it was a nice pivot to Tarantino's epic face. Uh, The soundtrack is good. No especially amazing performances, but no bad performances. Uh, Though Russell is fun. And and Rosario Dawson is good as usual. I've I've really always liked her as an actress. Um, uh, And Zoe Bell, she's arrived. She's an actress after this. She's a lot of fun in it. She's somebody you'd like to hang out with and, and you know visit with, although she'd beat you up too. She's intimidating. Um, all right, the next two films in my list on my list are from this later greater period. 
That's funny because they're powerful films set on a much higher level with a much greater budget, but the whole isn't always greater than the sum of its parts. And number seven, and I'm sure there will be many who are shocked I'm putting it this low on the list, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tarantino's most recent film was nominated for many awards, uh, and Brad Pitt received his first Oscar for his uh, supporting role in it. It's an incredibly well-wrought tribute to 60s television and film with stunning sets and some wonderful performances. But you can get caught up in that and fail to ask the main question, what is this movie about? And I don't have a satisfactory answer. Like, is this a three-hour movie about the fact that it sucks to be an aging actor? Tell that to aging actresses. I just feel like I'm missing something. There should be more to it than this. It's Tarantino's most unabashed love letter to Tinseltown and Pitt. Margot Robbie and Leonardo DiCaprio give great performances, but for what? As what? A washed-up movie star who gets his second wind on TV and with spaghetti westerns? His dedicated stuntman who may or may not have killed his wife? Who sacrifices everything for the other man just out of goodness? Both this and Inglorious Bastards change actual historical events. And and that's how you know Tarantino's universe is an alternate universe that, I guess, Doctor Strange can visit or something. And And for some reason... Of those two major historical changes, the end of World War II and the Manson murders, this one bothers me more. Maybe it's because how Hitler ki- is killed in Inglorious Bastards is such spectacle, so over the top in its treatment of cinematic worship that it's okay? I don't know. But the fact that this has Sharon Tate and the Manson murders teased all movie only to be undone in violent comedy, it's just never really sat with me that well. It's an unnecessary side plot that, given the brutal moment that the, the Tate murder is in American history, just to give it a do-over, I don't like that. I never have. And the rest of the movie seems to have very little purpose to me. The soundtrack is fine. The costuming is fine. The foot fetish is there. Um, and the constantly playing 1960s advertisements in the background, like you truly feel like you've traveled through time, but all together, it doesn't add up to much for me. I like watching performances in it, uh, but I, I just don't get it. Maybe I missed something. Anyways, number six, Kill Bill. Which, despite being released as two films, Tarantino regards as one film, and so will I. If Jackie Brown was a love letter to Samuel L. Jackson, then Kill Bill is a love letter to Uma Thurman and much, much more. It is his version of the Hong Kong splatter films of the 70s and 80s. It's also got a little bit of Charlie's Angels, anime, slasher flicks. It's got a great soundtrack, and it's got loads of women's feet. It remains the most rewatchable film, maybe, uh, well, definitely so far on the list. Okay, so the bottom six. Um, They're all rewatchable films, but 
part of the reason why Kill Bill is so rewatchable is because it's so long, you always forget something. Like, I've got Pulp Fiction pretty much memorized. I've seen Kill Bill, both of them, four times. Modest number for a good Tarantino film. And there's still a lot that surprises me because they're just, there's just, they're just, it's so long. There's so much. And there's so many episodes, right? Um, it's very episodic because it's about hunting down particular people and the story of hunting those people. Um, it's got some great action and it's the beginning of the almost comical splatter gore that has been in every Tarantino movie since. I'm not saying the guy hasn't always been very violent. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are covered with blood. But there's a point that he begins with Kill Bill that the blood gets almost comically over the top. The gore. Think of the blubbery popping blub 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 sound in the big shootout in Django Unchained. Um... Kill Bill is, like I said, it's episodic. It's full of little side stories or else flashbacks to the bride's past, um, showing her motivation for retribution on those who have wronged her. It gets a little repetitive, and even the biggest kung fu fan must get a touch bored with the length of the action sequences at time. Um, the halfway point shift in tone where theatrically the second movie begins keeps the audience's interest and the arrival of, uh, of, uh, David Carradine as Bill allows for, for some scene stealing. Uh, he does a great job in his role as Bill and it's neat how he's only teased in the first half slash film, but in the end, Tarantino is a great writer who embellishes with action scenes. When the movie is about action scenes like this one, it can get a little tedious. I'm probably committing Tarantino fan blasphemy when I say the whole um, uh, big long yellow jumpsuit fight scene with all of the ninjas in the the, um, nightclub at the end of part one is way too long for me. I get bored. I know, I know. I'm I'm going to film watchers hell. Kill Bill's worth a watch and a rewatch as every episode has its own tone, its own narrative style, its own cinematography and art. But the second half isn't quite as iconic as the first, and eventually the film just ends. Ba bomb Bill is killed. Spoiler. Number five, Django Unchained. This is at times a great movie. Despite Tarantino going all in on the racist content and despite it being the lesser of Tarantino's two westerns. Ah, the western. Even this director can't help himself from the rootin' tootin' free-for-all that America and Hollywood have convinced the world is an important epoch in human history. I'm going to do an episode sometime on the tired, overused Western and how it needs to be put out to pasture, along with Batman and zombies. Um, Django, of course, is more than a Western. It's a story about slavery. Its story isn't a masterwork, but it's grounded by a slew of very fine performances from Jamie Foxx, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, Kerry Washington, and most especially Christoph Waltz. Walt scene steals his way to his second Oscar in a Tarantino movie, and I'm personally convinced he's a better actor than Tarantino as a director. Comment me, bro. 
It's a very well done film with, again, some great sets, some really cool uses of them, and some wonderful camera work. It, it, is, it is a beautiful, beautiful film to look at. It's also a movie that makes me personally very uncomfortable. The first moment in Pulp Fiction where Tarantino himself shows up on screen as Jimmy, the guy with the tasty coffee, and is a white man who says the N-word in modern times about a dead black man to another black man, that has always made me super uncomfortable. So this movie, well... I know it's about slavery, I know it's completely unfavoring of slavers, but still, the N-word is in this movie more than your most volatile NWA album. This is sort of a weird one, because the parts of this movie are actually better on their own than the created sum for me. Something common with a lot of uh, Tarantino sort of mid-rangers like Kill Bill. We enjoy single scenes or find them richer than the film as a whole. This is certainly true for Kill Bill, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and this one, though most of Django, is better than those other two movies. There are some groups of scenes, such as the protracted journey through the Mississippi forest to Candyland, that you just fall into watching. There's uh, the protracted dinner scene at Candyland and all its subtleties. Um, and this is a movie about its performances. Those four chief players, Fox, Washington, Waltz, and DiCaprio, are so captivating that you lose yourself in a performance. I mean, they're so good that you forget about the strength of Samuel L. Jackson in this film. Uh, he's good. He's just unremarkable compared to those other four. Don Johnson and Walton Goggins can sort of be forgotten, even though they're good at what they do too. They they play a stereotype to a T. But I think I can put my finger on exactly where this movie goes from a movie I uncomfortably love to, to a movie I just tolerate. It's the scene, the crisis, um, where half of the main characters are killed off. The scene... Steelers, Waltz and DiCaprio are both dead by the end of this. And they're so awesome that when removed from the last half hour of the movie, it's just, it's not the same movie as hard as Fox tries. It's just after the dining room scene where Calvin Candy has been ranting about the natural biological inclination of black people to servitude with proof found by three bumps on the inside of the human skull. Evidence so scientific it would convince an anti-vaxxer. Then DiCaprio famously cuts his hand, uh, but the scene plays on. Uh, then the scene moves to a drawing room and dessert, white cake, is served. And we have the signing of papers because um, Waltz's King and uh, Fox's Django have been found out. Waltz as Dr. King Schultz, removes himself from the room as he's still haunted by the mauling of a black slave we've seen earlier in the movie, uh, a Mandingo fighter mauled by dogs. Uh, he, he removes himself to a small library where he is joined only by Calvin Candy. The, the rest of the gathering watches their interaction through a set of double doors. It's like a scene within a scene, a dark play, a, a, a meta theater on film. Schultz insults Candy twice, lethally and calmly, then walks off. Candy, in a move to retain his dignity and mastery of the situation, insists on a handshake. After a back and forth, Schultz holds out his hand, 
but a small retractable pistol appears in it. He shoots and kills Calvin, turns in time to tell Django, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself, and then is blasted down by the character Butch's shotgun. It's nothing new for Tarantino to surprise us with the deaths of major characters, but we've had an hour of these two heavyweights uh, gobbling up scenes, and as good an actor as Fox is, 75% of their movie is him looking cool and being invincible. It's hard for him to carry the characterization weight for the rest of the movie. As well, after their deaths, we're treated to a ridiculous shootout scene I talked about earlier with that unadvised bubble-popping sound effects of blood um, and a rap soundtrack in the background. It's just never as good as that after those two leads are killed off. And I hate saying that because they're white leads in a movie about a freed slave, but um, it lacks. It lacks after them. Um, Django Unchained also features one of the lesser of Tarantino soundtracks, though it's not meaningless. Um, the use of hip-hop for some of Django's better moments, like the slow-motion splatter, bubbly, blood sound, shootout scene. Um, but there's a good little Shawnee Cash number, Ain't No Grave, but the standout songs are, of course... Um, Rocky Roberts' Django from the 1966 Django film and a bunch of uh, Ennio Maracone's samples from 60s Spaghetti Westerns. Nothing too stunning because everything is from an earlier time. And you know, other than when when uh, Brunhilde is pulled out of the torturous hotbox, there's also not as much of Tarantino's usual foot fetish. I guess this is a different kind of movie for him, maybe. Anyways. For me, number four is Reservoir Dogs, the one that started it all. Well, sort of. I think most of us saw it after we saw Pulp Fiction. Oh, I'm sure there are people who knew Tarantino before he was cool, but still, this is a terse, brilliantly paced, brilliantly written heist movie without the heist. Full of double crosses, hidden identities, betrayals, and so very much violence. He would basically make the same movie again, a second time, and better, but still. This thing is a masterpiece of the gory crime genre and of the single set piece genre. It's like Martin Scorsese meets 12 Angry Men. Part of what's good about Reservoir Dogs is accidental, though. Ah, maybe that's not fair. It's the genius of a man exploiting a bad situation. The fact that Tarantino had almost zero money to pay for this film it is only in color because he sold the script of True Romance so he could afford to do a color movie. It means it's all set and generally run one location with many, many long extended shots that have sort of become his hallmark. The more you watch Tarantino films, the more impressed you become with actors who can do this, who can, who can get through these extended shots. These long takes of two or three actors talking, just riding his very specific style of dialogue. It's, like I said, there are some who can do it and some who can't. Samuel L. Jackson must have an amazing memory, right? Tarantino's films have a serious element of the stage, calling actors to show their chops, not by relying on edits, um, but by relying on their own memory, their own talent, and their own understanding of what a director wants, because I don't think this guy really allows you that much freedom. He's too much of a narcissist. So it says something when some actors, 
uh, John Travolta, Robert De Niro, Michael Keaton only do one film with this guy, right? It tells you that maybe his style doesn't work with everybody. Anyways, Reservoir Dogs is a great preview of all the things that will be good in later, later Tarantino movies. And yet, on its own, it still remains one of his best overall movies. It begins with that spinning camera table scene. Not spinning, but rotating, like going around the table. With Tarantino himself, as Mr. Brown, ranting about the true meaning behind Madonna's Like a Virgin. It has surprise betrayals, surprise and sudden deaths uh, of key characters, terse, profane dialogue. It does play a little bit with time, showing flashback scenes. Um, it's divided into episodes to uh, to a degree. Every time I watch it, though, I'm amazed with those long shots and the dialogue that is delivered in them. If it weren't for the guns and splatter effects, this would easily translate to the stage. The soundtrack is one of Tarantino's best known with Little Green Bag and Stuck in the Middle being standouts, setting the whole thing around this Songs of the 70s weekend on the radio, which allows for music uh, to take such a key role uh, in this movie. It and Reservoir Dogs, or It and Pulp Fiction, I should say, both um, really, it's a toss-up which one is more loudly defined by its its uh soundtrack probably pulp fiction because it was a bigger movie but there are songs in both of these soundtracks that automatically call scenes to mind but there's no feet maybe he didn't have the footage yet foot footage the footage the foot fetish yet but there are no female characters of any significance so a foot fetish would be hard to engage unless one of them was carrying around a cut off foot but that sounds morbid even for Tarantino alright Reservoir Dogs now let me just say as we enter the top three I must say I struggled with the order I'm not sure I totally agree with my reasoning and number one feels like a bit of a conventional choice but let's just say these are the three best Quentin Tarantino films and rating them is difficult because they're all very good. If one of them was playing right now, I would be watching it and not wishing I was watching one of the other two. So take that for what you will. Number three is Inglorious Bastards. This film is so good for so many reasons. It's nearly perfect, but for a couple of questions, but not big questions. This movie was the opening of this third act of Tarantino's films, his return to form as a darling of Hollywood, and the beginning of his epic historical phase. But most importantly, the international introduction of one Christoph Waltz. I use chapter one, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France sometimes, when I teach a film study in uh, 30-1 English or 20-1 English sometimes. Those are grade 12 and grade 11 academic Englishes for those of you outside the province of Alberta. That chapter is an example of perfect cinema. The writing, the dialogue, the pacing, the music, the lighting, the cinematography, the acting. It is a perfect film scene doubly triumphant for its introduction to most English-speaking audiences of Christoph Waltz, who plays the horrifyingly delightful, delightfully horrifying SS Hans Landau. I could break down every shot, every sound, every line, every lighting choice of this scene alone, and we'd be here for seven hours. It's a masterpiece. 
in the very finite genre of homage creationism, a genre in which Tarantino is basically alone as filmmakers go. All four films in this epic stage are historical. Everything prior to that had been modern. And they're all genre fiction. Except for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I still attest doesn't really know what it is. Inglorious Bastards is a spy-slash-war movie, the likes of which were all over the place in the 1960s and 70s, usually with Lee Marvin in a role somewhere. The other thing that's special about this film is it's the most like Pulp Fiction in that there's no true star, because the film is a linked series of disparate stories. It's a combination of tightly crafted episodes, each united by a general narrative thread, each with its own protagonist. The performances of Waltz, Michael Fassbender, uh, Mel- uh, Melanie Lomet, uh, Daniel Bruhl. This is his first big moment, and he's he's uh, become quite a quite a star on the other side of the pond. I mean, on this side of the pond, he's from Austria. I think he's from Austria. He's either German or Austrian, and I know Austrians hate it when people screw that up, but hey, man, I'm Canadian. Diane Kruger's good in it, and of course, Brad Pitt. He gives a huge, huge, huge performance. It's a World War II movie, but it's also Tarantino's um, loudest love of cinema movie prior to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know I said that about Death Proof, but Death Proof, it's about Hollywood. This is about cinema. Given that a theater and film are all weaponized in this movie. A Nazi propaganda film becomes a trap and the revenge of a Jew who has lost her family um, becomes the the pivot of the climax. More cinema is discussed in this movie than in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love this movie, despite its couple of faults. Those faults still manage to loan it a sort of charm, but they leave me feeling icky. Simply put, there it's humor and it's unhistorical ending. This is one of Tarantino's funnier movies. It's about Nazis. It has a massacre of Jews. It has appearances of Adolf Hitler. It shows the scalping and bludgeoning of prisoners of war. Waltz himself, the main antagonist of this film, and as nasty a Nazi as you could find, provides a lot of the best comedic moments along with Brad Pitt. I'm not saying that comedy is a bad thing. Comedy is a wonderful thing, even with such heady subject matter. But given that this and Django have the most funny moments, it's almost like he's balancing the gravity of their settings um, and topics by using comedy. It's also a reminder that Tarantino's movies are movies with absolutely zero grounding in reality. And that brings us to problem number two. It's not historical. No, not just that it's a made-up story full of made-up characters in World War II. Saving Private Ryan is that. No, this movie changes history. In the climax of the film, Hitler, Goebbels, and every other high-ranking Nazi is killed in this theater by French resistance and American commandos. There's no bunker, no suicide, no Nuremberg trials. It's weird, and I've met people who wonder if that's actually how World War II ended. Yikes. I don't find it too big a deal. I'm a little embarrassed to say that the undoing of the Manson murders, like I said, is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood bothers me more than the rewriting of world history in Inglorious Bastards. I suppose that's silly, 
Maybe it's the distance of time. More likely, it's because this is an odd choice in an otherwise great movie, whereas Once Upon in Hollywood's climax solidifies that it's a confusing movie with a pointless story but lovely performances. Glorious Bastards is linked episode Tarantino at his best. It's what makes Pulp Fiction great. It's what makes Kill Bill good. When I decided on the initial order of this list, I actually thought Inglorious Bastards would be number one. But when I was honest with myself, it's number three. But we're splitting hairs at this point. The opening scene, the scene of the standoff slash shootout in the basement bar, and the scene of Shoshana uh, getting ready for um, the, the night of the giant floating head, um, and then surveying the crowd as each of uh, each of the other characters are shown in the cinema. Those are those three scenes alone are masterworks of cinema. It's got a jaunty and fun soundtrack. It's got Mike Myers for some reason. It's got Diane Kruger's beautiful foot shot and put in a cast. I've rewatched it and bits of it probably more than any other film on this list, including Pulp Fiction. And yet, I still attest there are two better movies by Quentin Tarantino. And this, the first of those, number two on my list, is The Hateful Eight, which sort of snuck up on me. Uh, that seems to be consistent. Of Tarantino's four great historical epics, this one had the least renown on its release. Yet, it is very popular. I've noticed, especially with young, new fans, this tends to be the one they like the best. He's too big to have a cult film, um, but this is his closest to one since Reservoir Dogs, and that's sort of funny because this is a Western version of Reservoir Dogs, taking all of what's good about that movie and upgrading it, despite it being in an old, tired, derivative genre. Like I said, I'm more sick of westerns than I am of zombie movies, vampire movies, and movies about Batman. And that, kids, is saying something. Consider, you have a group of strangers all brought together. You have at least one person who is not what he seems. For the majority of the film, everyone is at one location. It's done brilliantly in Reservoir Dogs, but some of that was just the genius working around his budget constraints. Now you have that same genius with all the money in the world choosing to isolate a group of characters in one location during a blizzard. Betrayals happen, tempers swell, and at the end of the movie, everyone is dead or dying. It's such a slow burn, and it, as usual, has some stunning performances. Stand out for me are Jennifer Jason Lee and Kurt Russell, um, as well as Channing Tatum in a pretty small role. Old favorites Tim Roth and Michael Madsen are back, and Roth is as wonderful as ever. Samuel Jackson as the sort of anchor of the film, the nearest thing we have to a protagonist, but it's not his best role in a Tarantino film. The movie is perfectly paced, relying so much on dialogue that I'm actually disappointed when the guns start shooting. Like Reservoir Dogs, it could easily translate to the stage, but for the shooting in the blood, and that means great characterization. Theater builds characters. I only have one question. Why eight? There are more than eight characters in this movie, and... At no time are we isolated to eight main characters interacting. Tarantino 
A fairly significant narcissist, it seems to me, loves to tell you the number of films he's released. Uh, He even claimed he'll retire, like I said, after his 10th or whatever reason. Oftentimes, in the actual title card, it'll say the number of the seventh film by Quentin Tarantino. This is his eighth film, and it would make a heck of a lot more sense to call it his hateful eighth rather than confusing the audience by making us wonder which are the eight titular characters. It seems obvious who the eight are, except when you start counting. Because Obi is in there. Mind you, he's not especially hateful. Uh, Jody uh, Domergue is there, Channing Tatum. He's hateful, but it's a small role. My issue with the title is, well, who are the eight? Because it's more than that. Wait, aside for a quick mental scan, huh, yeah. I don't like any of his titles, except Kill Bill, because it's a pun. The rest, whoa, I've learned something about myself today. I don't think Quentin Tarantino gives very good titles to his movies. They're bad. They're bad titles. His chapter titles are good, when a movie has chapter titles, but... Nope, not one good title, in my opinion. Huh. Huh. Anyways, back to this one. The genius of this film is the moments where two or three characters get caught off into a corner and have a conversation. Several of the characters have backgrounds that are linked by bad blood, and half of them are not who they claim to be. The moments of confrontation can be intense or ridiculous, but usually good. Jackson's Major Warren does most of the intriguing and killing. The scene where he um, baits Bruce Dern's General Smithers into a to, to shooting at him is one of my least favorite parts of the whole movie, though. I'm not a prude. I'm not. But a long speech about forcing a man's son to perform oral sex on you, complete with flashbacks to that scene, gets so rotten it sees me begging for a regular foot fetish scene as a reprieve. Then there's the whole weird narrative of the forged Lincoln letter, which is pointless and annoying and yet is given precedence at the end of the film. Major Warren is the closest we get to a protagonist, and these events make him really tough to root for. Yes, the title in the adjective, or the adjective in the title, I should say, is hateful, uh, as in full of hate, so we shouldn't have anybody we should root for, but that doesn't mean they have to be all utterly despicable. I mean, I sort of like General Smithers better, and he's a racist confederate, but it's a great movie. One of my favorites, obviously given that it sits here at number two, but there is no Tarantino movie yet that doesn't have some scenes and characters and overall decisions I don't find awkward and I don't completely like. As for the soundtracks, this one just nudges out Inglorious Bastards for its elements of its original score. After using uh, Morricone in Django, Tarantino had the famed spaghetti western composer, the guy who gave us the infamous from The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. He had him compose this film, and it's wonderful. It's haunting. It's hovering. It's the musical equivalent of the blizzard that looms over the whole film. It's just, it's just hefty. It's a flawed but great movie. And it's even a Western. 
and I'm full up of that genre. Have I said that enough already? Well, if you're good at math and elimination, you know number one is Pulp Fiction. I thought really hard about this because Bastards and Hateful are so good, and to choose most of our first encounter with a filmmaker's films is also a bit of a cliche. But I thought long and hard about that a second time, and I still had to come back here. Pulp Fiction is a perfect Quentin Tarantino movie. And it doesn't quite get as bloated as some of his later greats, which are great Quentin Tarantino movies. What makes this a perfect Tarantino movie is it has everything that makes a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie. It is the movie against which all his other works, unfairly or not, all his other works will forever and ever be measured. That's a good thing because this film is so good, anything comparable to it will be a good film as well. It has multiple protagonists, multiple independent episodes, uh, which sort of overlap and sort of don't. It jumps around in time. It has surprise deaths. I think every one of us still remembers the director killing off Vincent Vincent Vega with absolute resentment so unnecessarily and shockingly. Um, and, And then we hate Tarantino for having two more full scenes of him after his death because the timeline jumps around. That sort of mistrust that haunts you. He's created a sort of mistrust that haunts you. And so when other main characters are surprisingly and shocking killed off, shockingly killed off in other films, it kind of becomes a cliche. But you know not, it keeps you hopping because you can't trust him. Um, Fassbender never stood a chance in Inglorious Bastards. The triumph of Pulp Fiction on your first view is two things. The writing especially the dialogue, and the arrival of one Samuel L. Jackson. Both of these triumphs are encapsulated in one scene, the apartment scene. Well, is the apartment in the hallway outside the that all adds up to the scene itself. Jackson's jewels and Travolta's Vincent show up at an apartment belonging to Brett and some buddies in order to retrieve a mysterious briefcase belonging to their employer, Marcellus Wallace. They're early, so they roam the hallway in an extended take discussing Vincent's forthcoming date that's not a date with Wallace's wife, Maya. Mia, sorry, Mia Wallace, Maya Wallace? I forget, it's Mia. And because it's a Tarantino film... The technique of foot rubs is discussed. They then enter the apartment, control the situation, interrogate and execute Brett and his friends, and ultimately retrieve the briefcase. It's all here. Everything that makes Tarantino good is here. We got awkward close-ups as Jewel uh, hunches over and grabs Brett's big kahuna burger. Jackson's... um, uh, intense interrogation and biblical misquote, the briefcase with its golden light, it, it light interior lit, golden lit, golden lighted. There's a light that's gold that comes out of the interior and uh, paired with the bandaid on the back of Wallace's neck in later scenes, it convinced us late 90s wannabe philosophers debating in our dorm rooms that the box contained Marcellus Wallace's soul. It's a genius scene. The perfect pairing of writing and cinematography. I'd quote it to you, but it's Tarantino, and I don't swear on this podcast. I'm actually not 
a super fan of Samuel L. Jackson. I like him, but I'm not a super fan. But in this movie, he is hypnotic. This is the greatest scene, but we could easily talk about the second diner scene or the scene in Jimmy's house with Winston Wolf, except for Jimmy being our writer-director dropping Edwards like he's Calvin Candy. And he's doing so much work in grounding this thing. Jackson is focusing it, sharpening it. Man, just talking about it briefly, I want to watch it again. I hate feeling that an artist's best work is only his early stuff. But in this case, it's not that his later stuff is lesser. It's just that Pulp Fiction is that very, very, very good. It's a masterpiece among masterpieces because unlike Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight, it has a satisfying ending. But still a dumb title. Tarantino sucks at titles. But Quentin Tarantino is the best Quentin Tarantino style director I know of. It's his genius and his arrogance that even more than Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick, you cannot be unaware of who has created what you are watching. You never forget Tarantino. You never get so sucked into a movie that you forget Tarantino in one of his movies. The director is present in every scene. And that's fine in one way. And it's annoying in others. Narrative art, novels and short stories and films, creates what John Gardner calls the fictional dream. And you forget that you're reading a book as a novel or watching a film. That never happens with Quentin Tarantino. The combination of his artistry and his arrogance makes him impossible to forget in every single shot. His art does not imitate life. It imitates other art. He is first and foremost a film watcher, and all of his art is homage. Like William Shakespeare, he steals his best idea and improves upon them to the point that the original is meaningless. It's derivative, but when it's good, it's great. And I personally won't stop watching and re-watching good old QT. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.